This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Welcome back to Such Sights to Show, a all things Clive Barker podcast. I'm Joe Lipset, and I'm joined as always by Mr. Brian Christopher. Hi, Brian. Hey, Joe. We're uh, we're back into short story territory, but I mm, I feel like this is going to be I don't know maybe the least Barkery of of the batch we've talked so far. Yeah. So, folks, we are talking about Books of Blood, Volume Five wild to think that we're nearly done with this but um it's interesting that you say that brian because the horror queers book club met recently to talk about this volume and the consensus was this is feeling less like the traditional clive barker where it's more emphasis on horror and it almost seems like he's moving into his fantasy territory because i would argue two of the four stories really start to feel like oh we're exploring new worlds not necessarily horror no absolutely yeah dark dark fantasy doesn't seem like he's as interested in Mm -hmm taking you to like taboo places in this one definitely touches on it not you know there's still definitely like full-on barker-esque elements uh, but he doesn't seem to dwell in them as much and there's a little bit more of like ah hopefulness might be too far when you're talking about barker (laughs) but like there's there's rays of uh, not even sunshine we'll say moonlight in Mm -hmm. in this right yes Okay, so Books of Blood, Volume 5. I mean, it says it's published on June 1st, 1985. uh, But I feel like the issue that I continue to have with these is I don't have a good understanding if all the stories were written at once and then just divvied up between the six volumes. Or if it was, you know, I finish Volume 4, I get to work on Volume 5 while I'm working on other projects. Because... Some of these do feel, you said, you know, a little bit of moonlight, maybe a little bit of hopeful optimism. I think the other thing with these is that he just feels less engaged with some of these. Like, I don't think Hmm. this is his best work. I think it's very serviceable. None of these, like, I'm, I'm still not in the realm I think I think so far for us the nadir of of these was I think volume three, uh, where I think we were just both in the slog of like we just were reading. I think it just goes back to we were reading too much too many short stories at right. that point. And for me, it was just getting it was getting to be too much. Mm-hmm. Here, yeah, I wouldn't say any of these are his best work. Right. And and now that you mention it, like I wouldn't like be opposed to using the term phoning it in a little bit with these. <laughs> um, but it's it's one of those things where Clive Barker phoning it in is still better than a lot of people trying their best at short right. stories. Yeah. And yeah, like I, it, it was also, these were as Barker short stories go fairly short and to the point, like, you know, there's only mm-hmm. four of them here. Um, they weren't like, they didn't super drag out at least none of them that, uh, that, that uh, I remember. Right. But yeah, it was not his best stuff, but definitely not his worst stuff. Yeah, yeah. 
the feeling that I had finishing this was this was serviceable. I didn't mind any of these, which is mm. good because there's only four as opposed to five. So if one of them being bad would have immediately stood out in a dramatic way. But yeah, you know, when I think back to the stories that really got us, that we got excited to talk about, I think for me, the first story, The Forbidden, which is, of course, the source material for Candyman, is the strongest. And then the other ones are all filled with interesting kernels. And then it's like, some of them just don't quite hit the landing and or I think the more interesting aspects of the story are what would have happened after the end of them. Mm, yeah, I can see that. Definitely. So folks, cards on the table, we're going to have a very brief discussion about the forbidden and then we're going to do a mini-sode which addresses the short story in a little bit more detail as well as the film. So uh, Brian, do you want to kick off that discussion? Sure. Um, so synopsis, this will sound familiar to anybody who's seen Candyman. Mm-hmm. Helen is a university student doing a thesis on graffiti who selects a rundown estate as a focus for her study, where she notices disturbing graffiti that references an urban legend called the Candyman. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we won't get too in the weeds on this. I, I think probably, you know, if we're going to look at this as the short story, like the the area where this most veers off of what people are familiar with from the movie is mm-hmm. uh, it takes place in England and it right. doesn't incorporate race elements. Uh, it's yep. more of a, a class discussion than a race discussion. Uh-huh. And it is wild, right? I mean, we're going to have so, so much more to say when we actually get to the film. And I mean, goddamn, what a movie. But uh, <laughs> I think The Forbidden is a good story like i was interested in it even though it is relatively long because again there's only four of them so all of them are a little bit more meaty than some of the other short stories that we've seen in previous volumes this one still feels like there's more to explore like it's self-contained but at the end of the story i'm still thinking wow okay so i don't really know much about her relationship with trevor you know the the man that she lives with who he's a bit of a dick he just doesn't really Mm -hmm. support her work she also has this conflict with a colleague that wants to take them out to nice dinners you know he makes a bet with her about whether or not she's going to actually produce something or she's going to get to the root of her thesis and a lot of it just feels okay there's something interesting there but i still want more yeah yeah i mean i think a lot of this really boils down to uh through helen uh barker does not have a very kindly view on academia no (laughs) uh specifically like wealthy white academia where it's just a bunch of people in a room mentally masturbating with one another Mm -hmm. and yeah there's that idea of when you kind of go out in the real world the the whole fucking around and finding out which i think is you know Mm -hmm. you'll we'll dip a lot more into that when we when we talk about Candyman. And I'm looking forward to talking about that in terms of – because I think uh, while while race is not involved in the discussion in the short story, mm-hmm. there are elements of the – it's not white savior in the story because there, right. there isn't a race discussion. But there is the naivete or like the the savior element of mm-hmm. people going from you know their, their comfortable circles to trying to help uh, people in – the communities that they kind of look at from afar. Mm -hmm. And I think 
based off of some of the discussion that I've heard about the movie, some of that is lost in a way that is very present here. Like you're right. you're not necessarily looking at Helen as a straightforward protagonist. You are looking at her through the lens of like, no, she's she's flawed. She is a she's overstepping. Yes, yes, yeah. And I think a little of that is lost in a movie where it would have been so much better to have incorporated those elements. But I, uh, I, I, it, it has been quite some time since I've seen the movie. So right. I'm very much looking forward to kind of like seeing that again and seeing like, hey, maybe there were some subtle hints in the movie that, that I just don't remember because it's been a long time. Right. Yeah. Trace and I watched it for Horror Queers. I want to say it's two years now. And I do remember those components in there, but it's okay. possible that it was more something I was looking for. Like, it's impossible to read The Forbidden and not think of the film if you've already mm -hmm. seen it. Like, it's mm -hmm. just really, really difficult to divorce yourself. And I think it's, in some ways, I'm actually filling in components from the film as I'm reading the short. But I do think it's fascinating that there is this class critique of Helen and how she goes into this community, which is not her own, and feeling like she can just, like, she's breaking into abandoned units, she's forcing mm -hmm. herself upon the single mother, you know, she's bringing the police in when she thinks that there's been uh, crime and other things, and... It's fascinating all on its own, and then I do think that the movie augments that by intersecting it with race, and it just makes it that much richer. But the genesis is here in the short. A hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's definitely a case of – well, I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but mm -hmm. it's the, the that idea of a feature movie – kind of pulling off that feat of taking what's a really good kernel in a short story mm -hmm. and really fleshing it out more because i think that is like it's the ideal it's what you want yeah exactly exactly so i am i'm very much looking forward to doing a, a compare and contrast with fresh eyes uh mm -hmm. you know having read this and then seeing the movie again within the context of like how do they compare right Okay, well, why don't we leave The Forbidden there then, knowing that we'll have an opportunity to revisit the conversation. We'll move on to the second short story, which is called The Madonna. And the synopsis for this one is a man named Jerry is trying to talk a local shady businessman into financing the redevelopment of an old swimming pool complex. However, the pool has some mysterious inhabitants. Hmm. And Mr. Brian, I will say that apart from The Forbidden, which of course, has all this baggage from the movie that I just talked about. I think the Madonna is my favorite story in this volume. I would agree, definitely. And you know, we've we've had a lot of discussions about Clive Barker's ability, or in some mm -hmm. cases, inability to write women. Right. Okay. But I, I think we can both agree that he has a solid why are hetero men stance in a lot of his stories and books. And that is on full display here mm -hmm. where you just see hetero white men at their worst. Not even, not <laughs> yeah, even at this their is worst. garbage men. The short story. <laughs> the worst part is not even at their worst at just like baseline garbage. He's not even getting into like the most depraved stuff mm -hmm. that men do. This is just kind of like the, the stuff that you read about every day. You know, and it's yeah. horrific. Don't get me fucking wrong. It's horrible. But it's just, I think part of where he's coming from here is that, like, the mundane, you know, evil of the hetero white man. Like, none of this at this point, for us as horror fans, I don't think any of this is, is shocking in terms of what you're seeing from these guys. 
I mean, I think the thing that struck me the most is Jerry is in some ways a very classic Clyde Barker protagonist, right? So he's a very flawed man. He's got ambitions, but they extend beyond his ability to deliver. So he is small time. Like he's not even a a small fish in a big pond. He's a small fish in a medium pond and he's still struggling. So he's really overreaching when he's trying to get this businessman to finance the redevelopment. Like he doesn't even have the plans. Like he is just constantly scrapping around and that would be compelling enough. But then, yeah, you do introduce this absolute misogynistic bent where he's got a girl that he kind of dates but also he's beating the shit out of her Mm -hmm. and you know as soon as these men walk into this abandoned pool complex and they get even a hint of a mysterious naked lady it drives them absolutely wild like all they want to do is basically sexually assault these women who Mm -hmm. of course end up being otherworldly creatures and these men get their comeuppance and it's very satisfying in that regard but also men equal garbage the short story yeah and you know it (laughs) barker is is upfront but very casual about saying like these quote unquote women mm-hmm. that that they see are like no more than 15 years old. Yes. It's it's fucking gross. And yeah. you know, you you wonder at first like okay, is uh, is this part of the point that Barker mm-hmm. is bringing cuz it's it's early on where he's bringing this up so it's just right. like is he just taking this as like no this is just the way it is, you know. Or is that part of the story? And I think it's both. I think it's... I do, too. Yeah, mm-hmm. this is the way it is, but that's not a good thing. No. Yeah. It's tricky because we do actually get to see both men's perspectives. And I'm sorry, I can't remember the businessman's name. But we're reading first-person narration from both of these male characters. So there is no reprieve from their mm-hmm. points of view. And they very clearly don't think that there's a problem with their behavior, particularly towards these women. It's like, yeah, I can take that. That should be mine because I want it. Mm -hmm. And I think there is an an interesting level with, I believe Garvey is the, the businessman. Like there is an entitlement for him. And I think you get with Jerry, there's the flip side of that coin where he is he thinks so little of himself that he just kind of like allows himself to do these horrible things because he's like, yeah, I'm terrible. And mm-hmm. it's, it's fine that I beat and sexually assault my, my girlfriend because I'm, I'm no good anyway. I might as well just lean into it. Right. Yeah. I think that that represents an, an interesting diversion of how they handle their comeuppance. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I guess we'll get into kind of the the, the spoiler it. for this particular story. Yep. Uh, it turns out this being that inhabits the swimming pool complex, uh, the Madonna, basically will mm-hmm. turn men into women. Right. Uh, yep. And it's, it's much more cosmic. It's much more kind of like, you know, Cthulhu-esque nature yes. of how this happens. But the end result is, is you know, they wake up and they are women. Mm-hmm. And... I think Jerry kind of takes like a a fatalistic kind of just like a oh well this is this is me now I'm I'll keep chugging along and yep. Garvey just immediately commits suicide. He yep. is he is so ashamed by this turn of events that he mm-hmm. just if I remember correctly I think he like stabs himself and jumps into the river. Like it is yeah. 
<laughs> and I, I think he does a really good job at setting up like, yeah, of course, that's what Garvey would do in this situation. Yeah. Because if this this is how he views women, then like, no, I can't. No, this can't be me. Couldn't be me. Mm. Yeah, because he understands implicitly, Garvey does, what it means to be a woman in this world because he has abused them so thoroughly. Whereas Jerry doesn't seem to have that kind of awareness. So in his mind, he, you know, he wasn't very content as a man. He clearly was not doing well, quote unquote, by society standards. And so he just thinks, oh, okay, well, I guess I'll give this a shot. And, you know, I think if you extended this story another 10 or 15 pages, we would learn that Jerry would not do well as a woman. You know, he would probably end up having a very bad life because he would be taking advantage of other Jerry's or worse, other Garvey's. Yeah. Yeah. There really is a lot of like, if given another 10 to 15 pages elements to these stories, like you were, you were saying, like, you know, uh, with the the forbidden, it, it kind of gets into introducing Candyman. Here, mm-hmm. it gets into introducing kind of like the twist of what's going on. Um, right. I think we're definitely going to see that with. Uh, I think the only story that really ends in kind of like a, a final way is is our final one in the flesh. But right. definitely uh, the the next one we'll talk about kind of sets up the 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 twist that has all kinds of like. Mm-hmm potential for exploring after the end of the story yeah yeah i think the only other thing i would say about the madonna is that one of the reasons i gravitated to it is because i could so clearly see how this would be turned into a film i think Mm. barker's as always great capacity for language made this setting in particular really vivid like i don't know that i'd want a movie with jerry and garvey because that sounds awful but (laughs) i could very clearly see how scary and weird and otherworldly this pool complex would be and then particularly the finale with the madonna and what we do and don't see and how the bodies change it felt very very cinematic to me yeah no there's there's definitely you know especially if you had a couple bucks to put into this having something Mm -hmm. where this because i think it's a like a spiral basically where yeah the deeper you go in you're kind of like turning back in on yourself it's very easy to get lost mm-hmm. uh, very you know very la- labyrinthian is that a word i think that's a yep. word yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh you know very leviathan dwelling-esque uh just mm. in it in kind of a like it's a similar maze-like thing but actually kind of like the flip side of the coin whereas whereas leviathan's domain and of course i'm talking about hellraiser because why wouldn't i ever stop talking of course. about it? Uh, you know, lots of right angles, lots of like, you know, grid systems, things like that. This is a lot more like it's rounded. curves, right? Yeah, yeah. It's it's a, a curve that you can't ever seem to get out of. Which to me so clearly evokes a woman's body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think when they, they kind of talk about the, you know, the spiral and the, I think there's something kind of very, you know, vaginal about the, the, the mm-hmm. imagery he's bringing up there. And yeah, and how, you know threatening that is and how scary especially for two men lost i was gonna say for men yes yeah absolutely like oh god what do i do i i can't i can't can't negotiate these curves i can't figure this out at all yeah Uh, (laughs) these do suck but this story is pretty good (laughs) 
Okay, so you tease the third story, Babel's Children, and the synopsis for this one is a young woman named Vanessa Jape happens across a secluded compound in the desert in which a group of elderly scientists and scholars use their great minds to detail the outcome of major world events. And this, to me, is the story that is the absolute most removed from any kind of horror. Like, this is going fully into not even fantasy it feels like science fiction drama yeah uh, yeah and i was gonna say maybe the least barkery clive barker mm. story i've ever read yeah yeah you're not gonna get any of his grotesque imagery Mm-mm. you're not gonna really get any of his like cosmic horror elements no it's not even sexy no there's no, no sexual elements like it's it's yeah, it's it's sci-fi drama with kind of some comedy in there a little bit. Like it's this mm-hmm. the, this group of elderly scientists. So we're we're following through the the lens of Vanessa Jape. She is the the protagonist. Her big thing is that she likes to take the road less traveled, um, right? And the one that that doesn't have uh, clear markings. You know, and she's talked about how that's got her in trouble before, which mm-hmm. is of course ominous because it's going to get her into a lot of trouble here. Right. She's always managed to get out of every other scrape. So why not continue to live this way? Right. She lives on the edge. And of course, we as readers anticipate, ooh, this is going to be the one that bites you in the butt. Yeah. Yeah. And it does, but not in the way that you think it's going to. Exactly. Um, yeah. Because, you know, she finds when she stumbles on this compound, it's filled with these very eccentric scientists who are all aging, all kind of seem to be a little out of their gourds at this point. Mm-hmm. And they claim uh, to be basically dictating world events right. and that they are kind of this, uh, again, this little cabal. Uh, I, I guess if there's there, there's one area that this is Barker-esque, you know, there's that kind of like secret society element to mm-hmm. it. And they are in charge of helping shape the course of world events because there was an acknowledgement yeah. by the powers that be decades ago that they were not going to they were not to be trusted with that and that it was going to end in basically mass suicide you know of of a sense yeah so they ended up recruiting these scientists because they are brilliant minds in their respective fields so the idea is you bring them together they will chart a path through various conflicts guiding people in their decisions because a lot of world leaders are puppets and these people are actually better equipped to make these uh suggestions these changes implement strategies and so on so in some ways it's both very very cynical of politics and it's also deeply satirical Mm -hmm. and it's you know it's interesting because through vanessa you get these peaks behind the curtain you know she is held captive and she is talking to the other scientists and and she's not believing kind of a word they're saying but Mm -hmm. they all have a common goal of like all the the scientists have been there essentially against their will for quite some time. They all want to get yep. out. She wants to get out. Um, and so they make this great escape. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> and, yeah. Yeah. Well, they make this attempt at a great escape. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's both funny and sad because in the days leading up, you, you see like they spend most of their time playing games and doing these frog races, which mm-hmm. will come back later. Um, so it's just, it's this like motley crew of people who are trying to make this like great escape and Vanessa gets shot and they're kind of careening out uh, because one of the, one of the scientists takes over and drives and they're, mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. having a grand old time right up until he drives them off a cliff and yeah. everybody in the car but Vanessa dies. It's it's a surprisingly grim outcome that I was not anticipating because so much of what precedes it doesn't have that vibe. Yeah. No, it has a like it's too jokey. Yeah, it's jokey. And it's weird because it's even that climax is dark, but it's still kind of jokey. Like, you mm. get the sense that they're all kind of, like, laughing and rambunctious on the way down, like, while yeah. they're falling off the cliff. Um, yeah. and, and not even seeing death when it's, you know, a few hundred feet in front of their face. Mm-hmm. And so the the big twist comes when Vanessa, who's the only survivor of this wreck, goes back. There is this one remaining scientist, Goldberg, I believe his name is. He's blind. Uh, he had no interest in leaving. I think he was just so like nihilistic at this point. He was like, it wasn't going to work. So mm-hmm. he's the only one left to, quote unquote, steer the ship. But wow. he needs someone else to do this with. And we yeah. find out that like at this point... You don't need to have any kind of great analytical mind because it has evolved from trying to make decisions through like analysis and through study to basically games of chance. Yeah. And it's literally gotten down to the point where they they have represented countries through frogs that they have doing these frog races. And mm-hmm. it's it's, again, like I think you mentioned, very cynical, but mm-hmm. it's also like – well, think about the alternative. Would you rather right. leave it up to chance or like literally in this scene, Vanessa is seeing like a screen of all these world leaders losing their minds. Right. And he's like, would you rather leave it up to chance or would you rather leave it in the hands of these people? These fucking idiots. Yeah. And she very quickly goes, I see your point. And she sits down yeah. and starts playing this game. And there is something like so hilariously cynical about that because i i doubt anybody reading that would have made a different choice no no absolutely not i think for me this works as a bit of a punchline kind of short story Mm -hmm. but the issue is that i knew what the punchline was about five pages in you know the minute she arrives at this compound It's reminding me of that old 60s TV show, The Prisoner. You know she's not going to get out of here. You know that the attempt to escape is going to fail. You know that these men are actually telling the truth when they say, hey, this isn't just games that we're playing. So as much as I appreciated the very, very different change of tone compared to nearly every other Barker piece of writing I've ever consumed... It was too obvious and therefore too long for the payoff I already knew was coming. I will admit, I knew the general gist of what was coming. I, like, I knew they weren't going to get out. I knew she mm-hmm. was going to wind up back here. I had a sense that she was going to have to get involved in some way. Absolutely. I did not see the twist of like, no, these. this has devolved into games of chance. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, there was just enough of a reveal to okay. make the journey worth it. Okay. So yeah, it was it was just like, oh yeah, because like, and then when they say it, but it's also like, of course, like of, of course, course that's where we are with this. Yeah, it, yeah. For me, it was a little bit of like, oh, I guess I should have seen this coming a mile away. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So you you still got that little glimmer of pleasure because the story kind of fooled you, even though you probably had an inkling. Yeah, I knew something was coming. I didn't know that element of it was going to be part of it. Hmm. Okay. 
So let's talk about the last story in the flesh. And we're going to acknowledge we've been going in order from the copy that I have of Books of Blood. So I have the compendium of volumes one through three and then four through six. So this is the order that I got. But Mr. Brian, this was actually not your last story. This was your first story. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I know we've talked a lot about like curation uh and, and how these stories like have been put together and how the order might impact our enjoyment mm-hmm. you know for me i think starting within the flesh was actually starting with something that was probably the most barkery okay so i think it, it kind of works in terms of like letting you get your your <laughs> it's weird to think that like you need like the darkest and weirdest story to like get right. your bearings with Barker before you start diverting. Uh, <laughs> Give me the juice. This is what I yeah. came for. I need this first, please. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that, you know, it's, it's got all the classic Barker elements. It, it centers on two men, one a little older, one a little younger, mm-hmm. you know, quasi homoerotic, you know, yep. undertones to the relationship. There is definitely a cosmic horror element to this. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's definitely some very creepy creature visuals involved. So yep. yeah, this is, and, and this is firmly horror, but also I think the one that, that, that invites the, those few rays of moonlight that I talked about, I think this is where you see them. Oh, that is interesting. Yeah, for me, this made perfectly logical sense to put this at the end, because you're right, it, it feels like classic Barker. So this is where we're ending. It does also have because of that cosmic horror, and that hopefulness, it does feel it's classic Barker, but also in his new direction. Mm. But it specifically made sense to me coming after Babel's children because that story is a quasi prison that you don't really know it's a prison until the end of the story and then we move into this one which is literally set in prison yeah and it also makes for a very good like compare and contrast where it's you know the the playful story that at its core is very dark Mm -hmm. and then you have here the kind of very very dark story that at its core is offering some glimmers of hope Okay, so I am interested in you saying that because that was not the consensus of the Horror Queers Book Club. People found this one kind of grim. So unpack that for me. Where are you seeing the hopefulness in the story? Okay, so and and this I will I will be honest. You know, there was a little of this that was a little unclear for me. Uh, mm-hmm. I did kind of have to kind of refer back to the Wikipedia summary just to kind of like see where I was maybe lining up or not lining up with what was actually going on. Okay. It is a confusing story. I'll admit that as well. Like, and parts I think of by design, like, hmm? <laughs> you know, I, I think it is supposed to be taking you to places where, you know, it's kind of dwelling in deeply dark gray areas. Yeah. And yes. Yeah. So what we find out through the course of the story, Cleve has kind of taken almost unwillingly, he's been charged with taking this young prisoner, Billy, under his wing. And you find mm-hmm. out that Billy has intentionally gotten himself into prison because he yep. is looking to kind of look into the lore of his grandfather, who had this supernatural power to kind of like shapeshift and also to make contact with this kind of purgatory kind of a city. Yeah. And this is a city where it basically shows that murderers go and have to inhabit the scene of their crime for eons, like, you know, untold amounts of time, very long Mm -hmm. amounts of time. But it's also not necessarily to say that you have to be there for 
eternity. And there are ways to get out. Now, the way that they bring up throughout the course of the story is that basically you need to like trade places with somebody, (laughs) if I understand correctly. Um, and, and, And someone else needs to take your place. And that's kind of the, the, the premise here where it looks like uh, Billy's grandfather is, is basically trying to swap him out uh, mm-hmm. so that he can get out of there. Poor dumb Billy. Yeah, poor dumb Billy. And, you know, honestly, things don't end up very well for Billy. No. <laughs> he does he does wind up, I believe, taking his grandfather's place. And then things don't wind up very well for, for poor Cleve either, who Mm-mm. now that he's he's looked behind that curtain, he's become disillusioned with the human existence. And I also like it because he's it's almost like he's seen something beyond our world and Mm -hmm. he becomes corrupted by it to the point that living just in our world after he gets out of prison where he should be safe. Now he can just go off and live his life. Even though he is a career criminal, we learned that from the beginning of the story, he's unable to overlook what he now knows of the greater world or the world beyond. And it ends up effectively ruining his life. And yeah, so it is, and yeah, he he gets addicted to heroin. He winds up, you know, for the sake of getting the heroin, he agrees to commit a murder, and he winds up basically fulfilling his own prophecy, where the kind of illusions that he's been seeing, because in a lot of his dreams, he's walking around with bloody feet, mm-hmm. and he finds that, you know, in the circumstances of when he kills somebody, he gets chased by the cops, and his feet start bleeding because he's bare feet, and it's just kind of yeah. the, the self fulfilling prophecy. But for me. Clearly, that's like it's a very dark ending to that life. Mm-hmm. But the ending for me hints at like that's not the end of everything. Like right. you have to kind of pay the piper for the the sins of this life, but mm-hmm. you will get opportunities through some form of reincarnation. You know, you right. you, you will come back in in some fashion. You will not spend all of eternity forever atoning for the sins of this one life. Right. You know, and and the way that happens, I think, gets a little murky because, you know, they had set up that you have to switch places with somebody in there. But I I don't think at the end, I wasn't necessarily reading that as the only way out. Okay. Okay. Yeah, because I definitely read it as, oh, okay, so Cleve now understands what Billy's grandfather had to do to escape. So now if he wants to follow that same path, he will have to find a new victim. So I read this as quite a bit darker, like this was a continuation of his descent into more. So kind of perpetuating the cycle. Yeah, yeah, because so much of the short story does feel cyclical. And there is, you know, every chance that, you know, I might have missed something in the those final pages that does kind of hint that, like, no, that's the only way and this is what he's going to do. Um, well, it's, it's really unclear. Like, when you're saying purgatory, it's it's almost a shadow world, but it's not punitive. Like, it's definitely not hell, although you do have to interact with other killers and they may not be on your side. But it's like you're giving the impression that you could safely live out eons in this other place but it's like a very murky like considering how much we know barker can describe things so that we see them in crystal clarity in our minds this place to me felt very shapeless and very unclear very Mm -hmm. deliberately so Yes, absolutely. Yeah, this was and the the the, the creatures that that Billy becomes is is also I think deliberately, you know, murky and shadowy. And you mm-hmm. know, I think I think all of this is on purpose and I think it is it is meant to kind of like 
unsettle your brain and not necessarily in like mm-hmm. the, the, the traditional sense of like being unsettled, but just like not being able to get your bearings. Exactly. Yeah. There's a dream logic to it. Yeah. And so I think there is definitely the the ability to kind of like interpret differently how the ending kind of exactly goes so that, you know, I think that, you know, there's every every reason for your stance that, you know, it has to be by continuing that cycle. I think, mm-hmm. you know, that's a very reasonable stance to take given <laughs> everything that came before it. Uh, but I think there, there is also, I don't know, the language that he used and just kind of like there was language of rebirth and kind of like bursting forth into the sun that it just, it seemed, right. it seemed less harsh and less bleak than Barker could have made it. Well, I think in some ways it's the polar opposite of what we talked about with the Madonna, right? Where people are undergoing these changes and they can't really accept what they're becoming. Whereas Cleve, even if it does involve a lot of darkness, he's seeing that there is an opportunity for him to escape from this cyclical violence and darkness that he succumbed to. Now, if it maybe means he has to do more darkness to get there, I think that's where you and I are not quite on the same page. But you're you're not wrong that there's imagery that suggests maybe Cleve has learned from all of these experiences in his multiple types of lives, the real world, the purgatory world, and maybe he's now prepared to move into a new plane of existence. And I think there's something to be said about the the question of, you know, the people that you're pulling in, you know, and mm-hmm. I think this is getting some real murky territory, but this is right. a murky story. So the people that you're pulling in aren't necessarily innocent people that are just no. getting pulled in because, you know, they happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's usually people who are on their own path of violence or darkness and mm-hmm. have wound up there. And it's it's that chicken or the egg where it's like, is it the person pulling you into the violence or at what mm-hmm. point are you in charge or at what point do you have the agency to take control over your own actions and your own path? Right. You know, and I think, again, I don't think he offers any substantial answers here. You know, and I think he, he keeps that question as, as murky as he keeps everything else. Yeah, especially with the character of Billy, right? You know, you mentioned that he committed a murder to get into prison so that he could discover the secrets of his grandfather. He was looking for where his grandfather was buried. But by the end of the story, there's an insinuation that Billy would have never done any of this if his grandfather hadn't latched on to him from this purgatory place in order to encourage the kind of jailbreak so that he could take over Billy's body and negotiate that escape. Yeah. Yeah. And it, you know, and it's maybe not all reincarnations are created equal, you know, in in Mm -hmm. some cases, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe it's, it's someone kind of playing out their natural path to out of purgatory while swapping out with someone who was on their way in. Sometimes maybe it is more sinister, like with, with Billy and his grandfather. Right. Yeah. And I think uh, I think what I do like about this is that regardless of any of that or the morality of any of that, I think it hints that none of this is eternal and that like nothing that you are, nothing that you do is beyond some kind of salvation or redemption, Mm -hmm. you know, and that. You commit, you know, for, for, for Barker, I think he's, you know, presenting murder as like the classic, like worst thing that you can do. Right. But within this story, it is still something that needs to be like, you need to atone and you need to like do your time as it were. Mm -hmm. But there is a, there is a road out. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. This is one of those stories where 
I didn't love it when I was reading it because I found a lot of the prison stuff not particularly interesting. Like there's a bunch where Billy is being threatened with rape by other prisoners and Cleve is asked to do a better job of protecting him and guiding him so that he doesn't get into trouble. And I was just like, yeah, I don't care about any of that stuff. Yeah. I wanted to spend more time actually with the end of the story and where it goes and what does Cleve's life look like after this. And I appreciate that, you know, I keep asking for more than what the story tells me. And that's not the point. That's just something I would prefer. And yet this one in particular was one of those, I think what comes next is actually more interesting than the story that we got to read. And that left me a little unsatisfied. Yeah, I would agree because it's, you know, we I talked about how this was kind of the most barkery of all the stories, mm-hmm. almost to the point where it, it seemed to be retreading old ground. Like there was there was yeah. parts of this that like kind of felt like it was in the same vein as the the juvenile detention center story that we read from back in Pig I think Blood Blues, Pig yes. Blood Blues, yeah, mm-hmm. where it was just like, yeah, this seems familiar in a way yes. that almost feels retreading. Yeah, if you told me that those two stories took place in the same world, I would believe you. Absolutely, yeah. But also, that story was way better than this one. <laughs> a, a, a lot of the prison stuff here, yeah, it was, It was. I, I got through it, but I didn't mm-hmm. really get interested in it until like the no. third act. Yeah. It was more just the fact that because they were in prison, there was no escape. So when these shadow creatures are visiting in the middle of the night, you're still locked in the cell. There's no escape from that experience. And I felt like that was effective, but also, you know, the the everyday workings of the prison. I could take it or leave it. Yeah, same. Okay, so... Like always, this was a mostly enjoyable read because Clyde Barker is always a good time, but I don't think this is going to stand out as my favorite of the volumes that we've read so far. No, I would agree. It didn't have any of the like lowest of the lows, but definitely none of the highest of the highs. Mm-hmm. Which only leaves us with one more volume, which of course mm. we've already read one of the short stories in that, The Last Illusion, because it's the source material for lord of illusions but uh of course we will complete the trifecta eventually though not next so before we announce where we're headed next mr brian if people want to talk to you about any of the four short stories how would they get in touch hit me up on either instagram or on blue sky at evil taylor hicks Nice. And I can be reached at B Stole My Remote, and that's the letter B. And of course, we will thank the Anatomy of a Screen Pod Squad Network for hosting the show. So, Mr. Brian, we mentioned we're going to spend a little bit more time with The Forbidden as well as Candyman. And I think we talked about this off air. We're going to do both Candyman's. So we're going to do the original, and then we're going to talk about Nia DaCosta's recent effort as well. Yeah, yeah. If nothing else, I wanted an excuse to... It's been a while since I've seen either of these. So I, mm-hmm. I saw Candyman, uh, the the requel, the, the 2019 version when it first came out. Haven't gotten to see it since. And the, the original Candyman, I haven't seen that in years. So I am okay. looking forward to diving back into both of these and just giving them like the the full such sites to show analytical treatment just to see what like <laughs> little nuggets I missed the first time I've seen these movies. Okay, yes. And I realize folks are probably very frustrated with us because we keep talking about Midian Unleashed, which of course is the short story collection based on Nightbreed and Cabal. And 
folks, we promise we are still working on that. So that will be the following episode. We're just because we've just read the forbidden, we're going to pop that one out toot sweet. And then we will come back and we will continue our exploration of Midian and Nightbreed. Midian is older than all of us. It'll it'll still be waiting there for us when we get back. It's true. And and it's not like Boone has made any progress in finding a new home for these creatures. So they're still wandering out there. Still anyway. in the wind. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, until next time, then, uh, maybe treat women a little bit nicer because you never know what you might come back as. Squad.